0: Jesus, we thank you for our time together. Pray you'd be gracious uh, during our time in your word to show us things about ourselves, things we don't want to see necessarily, things about yourself. Uh, Be with me, Lord. Help me speak clearly and boldly uh, as regards your gospel and the way to knowing you. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. It was over 15 years ago, but I'll never forget it. I've never seen anything like it, and I'm pretty sure I'll never see anything like it again. It was uh, grotesque, perhaps, but altogether necessary, at least for this person. It was the it. One long callus from fingertip to armpit, developed by walking hundreds, thousands of miles on a single stick crutch. Uh, this was in Kenya and um, that's how he developed his callus and never, perhaps even before then explained to my weird mind Uh, I have something of a fascination with calluses a little uncouth, perhaps a little weird maybe a little grotesque they're remarkable, I grew up in this strange rural culture where if you didn't have calluses there was something wrong with you Uh, you weren't a man or maybe even a woman I didn't know what you were Um, you distinguished yourself from the comfort-loving sissies by uh, having calluses. i moved away and learned you can get calluses from all kinds of things. Musicians have calluses. Meathead weightlifters have calluses, even if they've never done a day of hard work in their life. You can get them all kinds of ways. All that's required is repeated exposure and abrasion, a certain kind of life or behavior. These Calluses, they do a couple things, they provide protection. They also desensitize. And as illustrated by my Kenyan associate, I really think you can get them just about anywhere in your body, maybe even your heart. What I'm going to contend tonight is that we develop calloused hearts through repeated exposure and denial to all kinds of things, So we become really hard to certain realities the reality of other people, the reality of God, the reality of judgment. And and we can do this by our dedicated desire to our own comfort, by judgmental attitudes toward others, by having exposure to the needs of others, but constantly denying them. All kinds of ways we can build these calluses. And yet it's the case that no callus is permanent, not a guarantee for protection. Reality is tough and rough, full of hard angles and constant weight, and at some time, whether it's in life or in death, what's underneath will be exposed. Well, what we're going to see tonight is uh, there's a cure for this condition, uh, and we'll see that because our hearts are calloused to the realities of God and to others, with those realities, uh, we must embrace repentance. Repentance. It's the way to a soft heart, instead of the hard heart that we naturally tend toward. Now, I've promised you a sermon about hell, and I'll deliver. I really will. But uh, this is how we're going to get there. First, we're going to see what we see. Then we're going to see what we don't see, what is often obscured. Then we'll look at what's required. So what we see, what's obscured, and what's required. And what we see in our story early on... um, It's a reality much like our own. In the first couple of verses, 19 and 20, uh, we see a story of life and death. That's before everything goes into this strange sci-fi tale that we have. Um, But really, this reality looks a little bit like ours. Uh, We see, and this doesn't take any kind of astute reader, uh, we see in lively detail the different lives of two men. One is rich, one is poor. One's clothed in the color of royalty and wears the equivalent of silk underwear. The other guy wears sores and gets his daily bath by the local dogs. One feasts banquet style as often as he wants. The other longs for scraps from this man's table and he gets none. One lives in a gated house, one lives in the gate. The rich man has seemingly played life's game rather well to his advantage. He's come out on top, he's made it. He lives a life of comfort. There's just enough detail in this early part, and certainly enough as we go along, to see it's a life of cold comfort. He's turned a blind eye to the needs of others, including those at his very gate. This has been a selfish life. The poor man hasn't played the game of life at all. or If he has, he can no longer play. He can't do anything. Notice, he didn't even get to the gate on his own. Someone laid him there. He's incapable of playing anymore. It's over for him. Life is just one of living torment. And yet, though their lives are very differently, what well, we see they share one thing in common. They die equally well. In verse 22, these two men remarkably show that they are both equally proficient in dropping dead. One can kick their bucket just as hard and well as the other. And uh, I, I don't want to be crass, but I want to make the point clearly. So often in the life reality is obscured, that we have a shared humanity. There are winners and there are losers. They seem to be almost different creatures sometimes. And yet, at death, what's revealed, what's clear, is we're all human. Now, we consider ourselves a civilized people, us sophisticated 21st century Westerners. Consider ourselves to be concerned with the plight of humanity in general. We think we're more advanced and civilized, more humane than their forefathers. And yet, I don't think it's at all uncommon for us to be cold-hearted and blind to the injustices, to the reality of what we see in these early verses. Uh, we, like the rich man, can live radically selfish, cold lives, uh, immune to the needs of others. Part of this is philosophical. We spent the last 150 years as a culture tearing out the underpinnings philosophically, theologically, for why we should actually care about other human beings. We really have. Uh, While saying we should, while advancing the cause of humanity, we have really torn out the underpinnings for why. The best answer now for why should I care for my fellow human being is something like, just because? Scripture provides a different answer. It's that man is created in the image of God, that we are all marked with an indelible dignity because we're made in the image of our Creator. C.S. Lewis wrote, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember the dullest, most uninteresting, here we'd say ragged, disgusting, um, impossible case that uh, you may one day be meeting a creature which, if you saw it now, you'll be strongly tempted to worship, or else horror and corruption, such as if you meet at all, only in a nightmare. What he's saying here is, because of the fact that we're creating God's image, um, there is both great dignity and great uh, disaster awaiting us. Um, we're not just assigned to the common lot of the graveyard to be... Decomposing carbon atoms, um, molecules, as uh, slowly time wears us away. Instead, because we're created in the image of God, we're made for glory. And that glory can be perverted. And then later, as we see, if God will pull the covers back on the full scale of reality, some will be glorified, some will have their dignity removed in a nightmarish way. Well, are we marked by that conviction in our life? That everyone is made in the image of God. That in in some ways, everyone is really awesome. Um, Or are we cold to that? Are we cold to that reality, to that conviction? And it's really easy to be cold to that reality because we're really good at being selfish, of playing the game of life to our advantage, pursuing our comfort. Do we care about other people? Do we ask how other people are doing? Do we pray for other people? Are we too concerned with ourselves? If so, that's a glaring sign of a calloused heart. And now that's one aspect of reality that we can see. This is what we can see. That sometimes we don't treat people very well. And what Jesus is going to do now is peel back another layer of reality and say, There is more to reality than what you see. There is that which is often obscured. And it's obscured because we don't want to see it. And uh, what we see him talking about next is, we're also cold and distant to God, and that has consequences, and we don't want to think about those consequences either. Um, We're going to let the story play out a little bit. Both men, now being sufficiently dead, discover this new reality, and we'll start with the good news. Now, the good news is, there's comfort, there's grace. Lazarus, we don't we know what he's done. We don't know if he's done a good thing in his whole life. Uh, but suddenly, this man who's experienced nothing but torment, at least in this story, um, is living a good life, living a life of comfort. Uh, he has remarkable company. He's at Abraham's side. Now, if you're a Christian, this is about the second most important person in Scripture besides Jesus. If you're not a Christian, if you from one of the other major religions, he's still in the pantheon of greats. Uh, this is the patriarch of patriarchs, the headwaters of God's work of redemption. Uh, and Lazarus, dog fodder, earlier on, is palling around with Abraham. And not only just sort of hanging out, but being comforted by him. The uh, text says it's in the bosom of Abraham. He's he's right here. With Abraham. Uh, being comforted. It's, it's a beautiful picture. And... Um, we're not really told why. We don't really know why uh, Lazarus gets this treat, and, and that's important because what we're going to move to in the next in a moment is this prevailing theme of judgment, this picture of hell. But before we can even get there, I need you to see, I need you to see what we have here in Lazarus. is a picture of grace. We can't even begin to talk about hell and judgment before we encounter grace. Here it is on the. Before we even get to the rich man and his experience. First of all, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Judgment and grace—we find them in the same passage. Uh, second of all, and further along the same point, we don't get any kind of explanation why Lazarus gets this. He certainly hasn't done anything in this text to deserve it. Uh, what he does really well in this text is he suffers and dies. It will be the temptation of some, maybe some of you, to say, "I need to suffer. I need to embrace a life of poverty." Now, that's not nearly, some of you are thinking, that's insane. Yeah, uh, well, that's not the the, uh, atmosphere of our generation. What about 30 years ago, all kinds of people were doing this. You need to become poor and suffer, and God would be fine. And Scripture is very clear about this, that poverty is no greater means to God than wealth. They're both trials, they're both temptations. Neither one of them commend themselves to God. The point here instead is that Lazarus has nothing to commend him. What he does is he dies well. And that's actually a message that you need to hear, my successful, smart, striving, pretty people. You don't get in on this comfort. You don't get in on this grace based on anything you do, based on any performance. It all starts with you being willing to do nothing and experience God's grace and receive it. It's a scandal, but it's also the good news. It's much better than the reality that are a bit successful fellows about to discover, which is the reality of judgment. Now, having been prodigious his whole life, he's having a hard time adjusting to this new reality. I can't blame him. Uh, and for those of you that couldn't wait for us to get here to talk about hell, here we are. There's a few things uh, about this reality of judgment uh, that we talk about. And uh, I'm just going to move through it under, as usual, some alliteration. The first thing we see in verse 25 is that uh, this is something that Lazarus, not Lazarus, excuse me, that the rich man deserves. Um, it's the burden of Abraham's explanation in verse 25. Child, remember, you in your lifetime received your good things, Lazarus in like manner, bad things. Now he's comforted, you're in anguish. Now, this is a classic reversal theme in Scripture. We often see it. And, and if you're not careful what you may find yourself doing or thinking, Probably like uh, the rich man may have is this is the seesaw thing, right? He's down, I'm up. I'm down, he's up. But this isn't fair. Like I had 70 years of up, and he gets an eternity of up. Is that unfair or what? And that's not virtually going on here. It's not just God flippantly deciding. Well, now it's time to switch things. and sorry, you get an eternity of suffering and torment. Uh, rather, what we see is. This man, unlike Lazarus, does deserve his fate. You don't deserve the grace and comfort you receive. He does deserve the fate he has earned as a result of his cold, indifferent stance toward God and toward others. And we'll see that as we play out. He deserves this because he's lived a life of cold selfishness toward God and toward others. And in fact, as we go on, we will see that he actually is getting. In this judgment, what he wanted all his life long. This man has gotten exactly what he desired. Except for the torment part. And you see this in verse twenty four. Verse twenty four he calls, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue. i in anguish. Well, he gets what he wants. Actually he doesn't. But he doesn't get his comfort. It's interesting to note though what he desires. He desires temporary relief in his suffering. What's really interesting to me is what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask to get out. Wouldn't you say, I want out of here. Can you get me out? Can you send Lazarus and throw him a line to me? Can you get me out? Instead, he doesn't ask to get out. Why? He doesn't want to get out. He hasn't wanted God his whole life long. Why do you think he wants him now? He doesn't want God now. He's never wanted God. He doesn't want him now. He just wants to be comforted in his torment. He gets what he's desired his whole life long. And what he desired is distance. Distance from God, distance from others. And Abraham goes on and makes the point, well, you got it. You got the distance, and it's set forever. You're not coming here. No one's coming there. This is a done deal. But we also see, if we look carefully, that this distance isn't just something between him and God. It's between him and others. You sort of see this in the way he treats Lazarus. Interesting. Verse 24, he says, uh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to uh, comfort me, please. Verse 27, uh, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Here's the picture. Rich man, you're in hell. Okay? And you're speaking to Abraham, saying, Hey, Abraham, could you send Lazarus? What is Lazarus? Is he your personal lackey? Is he your slave boy? Who do you think you are? You're in hell. You have no right to tell him what to do. He doesn't get it. He's been cold and distant to God and others his whole life long. He's distant. He's got what he wants. And even now, it is set, it is done, it's determined. It's not changing. Nothing about him is changing. He's got what he wants. It's never going to change. There's no room for moral improvement. He cannot see reality anymore. That Lazarus is now in heaven, glorified, experiencing comfort. He's suffering. And it's not going to change. He's gotten what he deserves, and it's not going to change. He's gotten what he desired, it's not going to change. Let me sum this up a little bit, and then move on and sum up a little bit more. Based on this, the idea of hell and judgment is a reality. Now, I mean, this picture, this account certainly includes some of the classic scenes of torment and fire, but we see sort of a different angle here, which is the reality that hell begins in the human heart. In the end, hell is the reality, the culmination of you getting what you wanted all your life long, if what you want is a selfish life, distant from God and distant from others started off asking, how can a good God send people to hell? I started the answer to answer that. I'm going to do a few more uh, little things on this, a little bit more uh, of a defense on this. And ask, you know, is this reality of hell inhumane? Is it immoral? Um, first, as to the perceived immorality of God. Is God immoral in sending people to hell? It's a question How can a good God send people to hell? And my question, based on the reality we have in our text, is what would you have God do? What would you have him do? If people all their life long want to serve themselves, distance themselves from God, ignore the needs of others, why do you think they, themselves, as humans, would suddenly want something different at the end? Why do you think God is obligated to give it to them? Do you really expect that persistent, lifelong hard-heartedness to God and others should have no consequence? Is God at fault here? There's more there. That's just sort of beginning the topic. Uh, Second, regarding the inhumane nature of hell. People say it's the same inhumane. This whole idea that God will punish people. Let's talk about the inhumanity of this text. Let's start talking about the characters. First, Lazarus. None of us know inhumanity like Lazarus. None of us have suffered like him. Uh, here's a man who starved outside the gate of a rich man, and uh, as one commentator wrote, had his swords licked by the guy's copper spaniels. We don't know if that's true or not, but... Uh, He suffered greater indignity uh, than we could ever imagine. And there are millions, maybe billions of people on this planet, maybe not suffering in the same way, but in similar ways right now, that have no hope of justice, no hope of freedom, no hope of having their rights ever uh, defended in the courts of their country. What do they have? They have the hope that God is just. And we will respond to that. They're vindictive. We've never lived like they have. We've never lived in an unjust society. It's that unjust. Where you can't defend your life. You can't defend your children. You can't feed your children. Would you deny those people the right to cry out for justice. The objection here, that God is immoral because he would judge people, is one that the majority of the people in the world would say, what? You don't want justice? You don't want justice? Next, we'll consider the rich man, the next character in the tale, this paragon of society, this super successful guy. Uh, well, there's not much going for him, not much to comment here record regarding uh, his treatment of other humans isn't very good, it seems. So let's move on to the last one. That's Abraham. And Abraham here is speaking on behalf of God. And he does something remarkable in this account. Think about it. I assume this guy, Abraham, and it's a parable, so I'm not stressing the details too much. But he has plenty to do. What's clear is he's busy comforting Lazarus. And in the midst of this comforting Lazarus, what does he do? He takes the time to answer the persistent... Complaints of this guy in hell. Now, this is all sort of theoretical. Jesus is making the point. What's interesting to me is how he addresses the rich man. Notice the rich man never is named. Lazarus, this poor guy is. God cares for the poor more than we do. Um, but in spite of that, he addresses him as child. He answers his questions. He treats him with dignity. And here's the portrait I see. That God is more humane, more committed to the dignity of humanity than we are. He's more committed to treating people humanely, who are in hell, than we are treating our fellow human beings in our life. It's crazy. And that's what I see in this text. He treats this rich man with more dignity than we treat one another. He takes time to talk to this guy. He takes time to address him with respect. Now, this is somewhat theoretical, but he could have done all kinds of other stuff and addressed him in other ways. It's not God that's inhumane. It's us. God cares about humanity. He offers it grace. He offers it justice. He even treats us condemned in a more humane way than we do. And for all that, neither the rich man nor we are at all satisfied not satisfied. Uh, we complain just like the rich man does. This is at the end of the text here. Uh, you haven't done enough, God. You see this at the end? Um, the rich man begs, send Lazarus, please, to, to warn my brothers. Abraham says they've got all they need. Verse 30, no, no, someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Let me translate that for you. What, what he's saying is God hasn't done enough. I need you to do something more. He he actually hasn't done enough in history for them. Could you do something more? Could you do something else? Because it's not enough what you've done. And that's some of us. That's some of us here. That's some of us uh, throughout the community. People sitting on the fence waiting for God to do something else. We're going to look at a second quickly at what God's done. All that God's done. I want you to consider right here what Abraham is saying. This is what I think he's saying. At the end, it doesn't matter. This is verse 31. It doesn't matter what else God might do. He could set up fireworks in the sky. He could turn you inside and out. He could commit all kinds of signs and wonders. It will not matter. If you're dedicated to your selfish life, to living a life distant from God and others, you will succeed. You'll get what you want am not going to do anything else. If, however, you see the reality that your heart is hard, if you can begin to see the reality that your heart is hard, that you really do want to be distant from God, that half the time you don't give a rip about anyone around you, if you can see the selfish nature of your own heart and how strong that is, then there's hope for you. God offers everything you need What's required of people that would want to escape their hard-heartedness? We see that even the rich man in hell knows the answer. Get into verse 30 with this word repent. We need to repent. What's required is repentance. I want to get this out of the way real quick. Repentance isn't God sticking your nose in it. Okay, That's sort of the idea. Let me stick your nose in it and make you suffer some more. No, that's what happens when you don't repent. You've made your mess... All your life long, like the rich man, and you get to lie in it the rest of your life. Uh, that's, that's what happens when you don't repent. Repentance is a reorientation from your selfish life back to God. It's the way to a soft heart. It's the way to a heart that's soft to God and cares for others. And it begins, as we see at the end of our text here, in verses 29 and 31, it begins with hearing God's Word. Contrary to uh, the rich man's objections, the word is sufficient. Is what Abraham says. They've got enough. They've got Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. Now we have even more. It tells the basic story of all that God's done for mankind. It tells you what God's like. It tells you what He's done. Contrary to your assumptions, it's not a book of rules that you have to follow perfectly. It's about God pursuing a relationship with His people over time, in space, down through the ages sending prophets and priests and kings and even his own son. then really, it tells you about that son. It tells you about him in great detail. It tells you how he lived. tells you how he loved. tells you how he died. tells you why he died. To bear the sins of people that so they would trust him, love him, and know him. It paints an intimate portrait of what Jesus is like. It, it tells us in great detail why we can trust him. How we, how we can trust him. Why we can trust him. He calls us to believe in Him. Then it details what it means to live a Godward life and not a selfish one. Because we don't know how to do it. Our natural heart inclination is always running back in selfish streams. It calls us back over and over again to a Godward life by calling us back again over and over to Jesus. Not to earn God's favor. Not to perform. But because we're loved because this is God's means of making us more like Jesus. The problem is that we don't want to hear God's Word. We don't want to hear it. We want to hear our own voice. We're used to our own voice. It tells us things we don't want to hear. Bill Cosby, in one of his early sketches, and he couldn't get away with it today because it's not politically correct, uh, contends that his children must be brain-damaged Maybe you've seen this sketch. It's hilarious. Because there's no other way to explain the fact that his children could listen to what he said, repeat it back to him, and yet not hear him. And this is the reality uh, with which we're dealing with our own son. Every night, Caleb, stay in your bed. Get out of your bed. We're we'll to punish you. You understand? Stop. Stay in my bed. Stop. And then three minutes later, he runs out. Happiest can be, smiling. Ta-da! I daddy! Son, what did I tell you? Not to say I'm on my own bed. What would happen if you got on my bed? I'm going to be punished. Yeah? I mean, he knows. He knows it all. He's heard it. He just doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to heed it. And that's, that's many of us. We have all we need here to hear. We just want to listen to our own hearts. Instead. Well, it's hard, but not impossible. If we have Jesus. We have God's Word, we have Jesus. And repentance isn't just performing well, it's turning back over and over again to Jesus. God doesn't want you to perform. He wants you to know His Son and turn back to Him again and again, over and over. And I'm speaking to you that are believers. This is what His plan is for you. To come back to Jesus over and over again through his word. And for those of you that are here that are skeptics. Repentance is a good thing for us. It's not God rubbing your face in it. It's God inviting you into a lifestyle of reality. Recognizing what's true about you and true about God. And running away time and time again. Because it's so easy to go back. To the selfish inclination of your heart. And turning to a God that loves you in Jesus. Here, as a skeptic, I'd ask you to seriously consider three things. I say seriously because the natural tendency of your heart is apathy and hardness. Just to say, like this man, I'll just wait till God does something. He's already done all he's going to do. He gave you a book over 2,000 years put together. He sent his son to die. The burden is now on you. He's not going to do anything else. He'll work in your heart through his spirit. He'll work in, his, in your heart through this word. But you have to be willing to do the hard study. So I ask you to study three things. Look at your own heart. Consider the way you treat other people. Do you care? Study the scriptures. Don't think you understand Christianity at all if you haven't studied the scriptures. And especially study the person of Jesus. I'm not saying you need to do this like right now, this moment, and I'm gonna call you up here at the end of the night to make a profession for Jesus. I'm simply saying if you're gonna make a decision to deny God, you should make an informed decision to deny Jesus, instead of just simply waiting apathetically for nothing to happen. Now for those of us that have a different story, that are believers, friends, you know, you know you have hard hearts. You know you cultivate the distance between you and God and others. You let it happen. You give yourself lots of slack. Then it hurts. God draws you back because He's good. What are you going to do about it? Well, for goodness sakes, don't expect it just to go away, okay? It doesn't just go away. Don't be apathetic. God has given you the means of cultivating a soft heart to Him. That's His Word. Study His Word. Come back to Jesus. He's not going to rub your face in it, He's going to open His arms up and comfort you. Reads the scriptures, pursue Jesus, preach the gospel to yourself. And I want to challenge you to do one more thing. Something strikingly this rich man does better than us sometimes. Tell other people. Tell other people about this reality. This man in hell has more concern for his lost family than some of us do. I'm just preaching this to myself, friends. Do we care for others enough to share the message with them? Have we prayed for good opportunities to gently, intelligently, winsomely share the message of Christianity with others? We can't make them believe anything, but can we help them understand what Christianity is all about? Yes. Yes. Have you asked them to come to church or RUF to study where they can understand what God's word is about? When I met the man with the, the famous callus, this is 1995, I was in Kenya. His name was James. I got to know him in the midst of a 18 mile hike. Nine miles out, nine miles back. It was Kenya. It was hot. The things I remember are the heat, the dust, the ostriches, and the fact that no one could keep up with James. James was like 50. James walked with a cane the length of his body, like this. I mean, the thing was pushed up against his arm. He had a callous length of his arm. And now that I think about it, um, it's remarkable. Uh, because of where we're going. We're going to share the good news of Christianity with people that didn't understand it. And James was doing this eagerly. Through discomfort, through, uh, in spite of his disability, never a complaint simply to share the good news. It's my prayer that one day, one day soon, that we would be marked like he was. That we would be marked in our speech, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions, with kind of love for God and others that James was marked with. Let's pray together.